answer the question. I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Uh, we had a very good dialogue. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. He's a man deeply committed to his country and the best interests of his country. Uh, and I appreciated so very much the frank dialogue. There was no kind of diplomatic chit-chat trying to throw each other off balance. There was uh, a straightforward dialogue. And that's the beginning of a very constructive relationship. This is the meat of the podcast. <laughs> have, you ever, have, you ever caught your, have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. 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 This shit feels like I won't ever make it home. This is She's in Russia, I'm Smith, and I'm in Brooklyn. And I'm Lily, and I'm in St. Petersburg. So, so what is today's episode about? Today's episode is about the Russian soul. The soul of the Russian. Oh. No, don't say the soul of the Russian. Yeah, I'm just, just riffing, okay? It's okay. I'm just warming <laughs> up here. I, I can move the words any way you want. <laughs> Switch them up, upside down, side to side. <laughs> Grab your partner, round around. <laughs> yeah, so today we're discussing the historical slash cultural slash literary concept of the Russian soul from both the Russian and American perspective. And we are joined by a very special guest, Hannah Gase, who is both a graduate student at Harvard and also a writer. And she, particularly on this topic, she wrote an article in August last year for The Baffler. And the article is entitled, Who's Afraid of the Russian Soul? The piece covers this historical concept of the Russian soul as it relates to contemporary Russophobia in American politics and media. Hannah, can you go ahead and just introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm Hannah Gaze. I am a Divinity School student at Harvard Divinity School focused on Russian Orthodoxy, nationalism, and extremism in a post-Soviet context. I am also a journalist focused on Eastern Europe and the alt-right. Okay, so we today are going to talk about the Russian soul. Do you think that you, we could start off by you kind of like summarizing the article you wrote for the baffler, Who's Afraid of the Russian Soul? Yeah. So basically what I started to see, especially I think it was a couple of months before the election, partly just because I was paying more attention to this stuff because I was getting ready to apply for programs and also just because I spend a gratuitous amount of time on Twitter. I started to notice that there was a lot of chatter about talking broadly about Russia and sort of how this broad notion of Russia fit into the election at that point, sort of perceived points of Russian interference. And one thing that seemed to be really coming up is all these people who would come out of the woodwork with this notion of, oh, well, this is what Russia truly believes. And this is what Russians really think. One one thing I've always really been interested in, partly just because the Orthodox connection has been the Slavophiles and sort of how the Slavophiles imagine national identity and how religion fit into all of that. And I started to just kind of dig in a little bit more to how 
the phenomenon of the Russian soul, which had fit broadly into a lot of Russian theological discussions surrounding the concept of national identity and ethnic identity, uh, but also within art, literature, etc., how that sort of had needled its way into American academic discourse, and in turn had somehow become this sort of bastardized discussion within social media communities full of inept assholes like Eric Garland, um, <laughs> who seemed to be extremely comfortable with making broad declarations about an extremely large country. <laughs> I sort of saw the two as connected. Eric Garland and those sorts of types, they're not really capable of talking about I mean, I'm not even convinced that Eric Garland, if you ask Eric Garland what a Slavophile is, he'd probably just like go on some long rant about how you're a KGB operative. Why do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you interested in that? But they, they did, I mean, it, it did just seem that this fit into a broader trend. And what had sort of happened, especially since the end of the Cold War, is because there's this lack of experts and because there's this kind of growing chasm of knowledge about Russia, is that they were just sort of capable of making these grand statements. And it somehow, like, fit in better to popular discourse than maybe it would have in like the 1980s. But at the same time, there was so much overlap between what was going on. And I, I, I kind of looked at Kennan's role in all of this because he's sort of seen as, and I, I did get some flack for this, but is sort of seen as one of the main sort of like Russia whisperers throughout the Cold War. And I don't, I, I mean, I guess I don't really want to say that Kennan was fully responsible for the Eric Garland, Louise Mensch phenomenon. But I think there's a certain amount of that ability to look at a culture and look at extrapolate based on the decisions of the leadership, what its people think. Could you actually just explain who George Kennan was? Yeah, George Kennan was, at least in my opinion, probably one of the most important Russia people of the State Department in the 20th century. He's the author of the so-called Long Telegram, which was basically a if you get really bored at work and pissed off and you write a 8,000-word transmission in response to <laughs> Western confusion over the Soviet mind, he has since became a sort of justification for a lot of what was happening during the Cold War. And I think looked upon how things turned out with a fair bit of regret, realizing his own role as well. He's an interesting figure with some problematic views. Just because you mentioned that you're really interested in the Slavophiles, can you can you describe this concept, this like historical notion of Slavophile? Yeah, so it's, it's an intellectual movement that pops up in the 19th century. It tends to see this sort of unique aspect of Russian culture, and it really wants to preserve that. So, I mean, one of the things that pop up, obviously, after the revolution, too, is this notion that... Russia is a unique course of modernization, and it has this unique addition to additional interpretation of modernity, an expression of modernity. The Slavophiles really took that and ran with it, particularly hyping up the role that the Orthodox Church played in differentiating Russia from Western culture. The Slavophiles also end up being tied somewhat to the early Eurasianist project, which also places an emphasis on this view of Russia's other and seeing Russia as unique and playing a unique role in world history, 
world politics, etc. So I want to come back to the article a little bit. Let's introduce this concept of the Russian soul, which you've now like described via via summarizing summarizing your article. But just a little bit more, can you like walk us through the historical concept of the quote unquote Russian soul, how it emerges? where it emerges, and like generally what it's used for. Yeah, the Russian soul, Ruskaya Dusha, pops up in a discussion surrounding Nikolai Gogol's dead souls. Within the context of a uh, American-centric view, I mean, I think one of the most prominent explanations I could find was from 1970 in an academic paper by Robert C. Williams, who saw it as means to express the idea that Russia had the potential for a glorious future independent of the government European influence at the dead hand of the Russian past. Nikolai Birdyayev, a Russian Orthodox philosopher, talks about it pretty extensively, and it also, I mean, it pops up in a lot of literary circles as well. And I think that's probably its most prominent initial expression. Yeah, that's just really helpful to like have a little outline that you just gave us. Because like, okay, so Gogol, for example, writes Dead Souls, which comes out in 1840-something, right? 1842. Okay, awesome. And I just like to also point out the fact that in Russian, the word soul is also used, can be used. It's now kind of like anachronistic, but it can be used to mean person, human. But then like specifically, if I'm not mistaken, it was used under Peter the Great to like refer to a tax paying person. So like how you count the number of male citizens or whatever that can pay taxes. I like that other aspect of it because it's not only this like sort of ethereal, it has this more materialistic bureaucratic meaning. That's just like a little side detail, I guess. The concept that you, you read the quote from Robert C. Williams of the Russian soul being like a potential thing. I like this, like, also differentiating very clearly what the Russian soul was for Russian thinkers and people and what it was for non-Russian, specifically people in the West. There's that Williams potential theory, and then that's from the perspective of Russians. And then there's, like, the from the perspective of the West, using the Russian soul, which you've already described when you first introduced the article, using the concept of the Russian soul to describe this thing that, like, makes Russia other. Could you, like, expand on what I'm saying? Yeah. My favorite that I had found was this quote from someone at the Hoover Institution, this guy who I, frankly, had never heard of, Ralph Peters. He wrote this extended essay about Vladimir Putin and his connection to the great Russian soul, because obviously this is something that is very much necessary. He goes in deep with George W. Bush, Bush's quote about looking Putin straight in the eye and seen deep in the bush, <laughs> naturally. Being a neoconservative, Ralph notes that Putin also saw very deep and all the way through President Obama, because obviously President Obama is the worst thing that happened to U.S.-Russia policy with it since the fall of this USSR. But basically, he's talking a bit about Putin's appeal, and one of the things he notes in extremely bad, over-the-top prose is that Vladimir Putin began by giving Russians back their pride Maui is giving them the gift that Russian culture values above all else. Revenge. <laughs> for all that, he's one czar in a long line. He longs for empire to regain eastern and central Ukraine, territory that was only brought under czarist rule in the mid-18th century and remains subject to popular revolt, etc. You get the point. That's basically <laughs> how it seemed to be 
used in more political circles now for reasons that, I mean, I guess should probably be obvious at this point. Uh, Ralph Peters does not really want a uh, nice, friendly detente with Russia. I suspect Ralph Peters actually is extremely pro Army in Ukraine, possibly one of those fun guys who likes to run through war games. So I think that's probably the best summary I can think of in terms of how it's used in the West right now. Uh, Sean Gilroy also pointed out during an event, I think it was at the Kennan Institute, that sort of this type of thinking imagined Russia as like a prototype of despotism and a barometer of backwardness and even evil itself. But also, and I think the Ralph Peters essay does a really good job of showing this, that Sean continues, where Russia stood on the spectrum had less to do with Russia as it did the United States. It's all about our own insecurities. So yeah, what Sean said sounds very much like, you know, that othering the sort of like general Western understanding of this Russian soul concept from its initiation and or whatever initiation, its birth by Gogol in the mid mid 1800s. Part of this othering is a theme that, that Smith and I have talked about a lot in different episodes and just like come across a lot, which is this like approach from the West, this approach to Russia as being like, you should be like us, but you're not or something or like you look like us, but you're not. I don't think I'm being crazy to want to tie those words that Sean used, like despotism, backwardness, and evil even, to this like other part of othering that is like maybe not as negative. I mean, it doesn't appear to be as negative, but it also is very reductive, which is like Russia as fascinating in its mysteriousness, but also repulsive. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most telling things about some of this is that, especially on the Trump side of the people who are trying to make Russia out to be this great place full of lovely white people, one of the things that's particularly funny is that they sort of want to see it as other and unique and this like holding up traditionalism against the evils of the West. But then there's also these, I'm just going to say idiots, like Jacob A. Wall, who is this. I love when you name the idiots. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's, just like, it's a useful classification system. Wall is basically this, I don't even know how to describe him, except for really loves Trump, really loves finance, really loves tweeting about Trump and finance. And I guess supposedly he went to Russia comes out with like a <laughs> essay describing like his five findings. And one of them is that oh, no. Russia looks more Western than much of the West because, well, not only did it have McDonald's. Wait, um, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you too much, but where was he? Do you know? Was he in Moscow? In Moscow or St. Petersburg. I, either way, he did not go very far outside <laughs> the sort of usual tourist spots. And I don't want to shame anyone. <laughs> I think that's fine. But when you're finding is that Sushi is popular in Russia, despite Russia's landlocked geography. Well, you know. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> what? Yes. Russia, the biggest landlocked nation <laughs> in the entire world. That's amazing. Wait, okay, so wait, what else? So he said more Western. Capitalism is alive and well. Russians hate leftism. I mean, they really just want to see all of these these traits that they want in Russia reflected back at them and will try very hard to find them. This concept that you've been talking about with like these Twitter idiots and like the appearance of this phenomenon where suddenly there's like this plethora of like Russia experts or like information warfare experts appearing out of out of the woodwork in this what you described as going to quote you right now a growing chasm 
about knowledge on Russia or about Russia. I'm curious, like, what you think that growing chasm is related to, because growing is obviously a word that is, like, a developing word, like, it's happening right now. Is that just, like, oh, because the Cold War is over, or is that, is that how that is explained? And then also, like, okay, I want us to more explicitly try to connect this feeling of, like, I can just reflect whatever I want on this blank space that is Russia, like, it's just, like, a mirror for my, like, fucked-up pseudo-psychoanalyst fantasies or something. How do we connect that tendency and phenomenon that we're seeing with the historical concept of the Russian soul? So I guess I'll start with the first one and then move to the second point. So, I mean, in terms of the lack of knowledge, I think a big part of that is after the Cold War, a lot of the a lot of people a just started switching to different fields of focus. So you'll have a lot of criminologists who started then just focusing more broadly on national security. And there's a reason for that too, is partly just because a lot of the money dried up. You you do notice this looking at graduate programs. It's especially hard if you're trying to break into the field. And for good reason, I think. A lot of language language scholarships tend to focus on people who've already have, have a good grounding in the language, but then if you're trying to build up from the ground up, that's sort of a blank spot. So within the academy, it's tricky because there are a lot of people doing really good and interesting work. It's the incentives and kind of like the ability to do research is limited depending on where you go. So that's one of the main the main causes of it. And a lot of this does tie back to the U.S. government slashing funding for programs. There was a really good essay in Foreign Affairs a couple of years ago on this. And looking at how cutting funding has resulted in policy effects on a broader level. And then I think there's a piece in Bloomberg View a couple of months ago that then sort of took this and applied it more specifically to Russia. And that's Mm. sort of what you're seeing with the people like Molly McHugh, who I think is actually probably one of the best examples of this, who got into Eastern Europe by being a consultant for slimy politicians. She's probably most known for working with Shakas Feli. And these guys then, as a result of their experience as sort of political operatives, you said as a jumping off point for becoming info warfare specialists, or I think, I don't even remember what the term she uses is. I think it's like a narrative specialist something like that (laughs) which like that's not wrong i guess she is good at making up things it's true very good at it the broader issue really does boil down to a lack of funding lack of incentives lack of jobs i mean programs across the country are being cut academia is just facing a general crisis but area studies in particular is one of the places that's being hit the hardest we okay so before you move on to the second part of that original question i don't know if you have any insight into this but what do you think of like these Twitter grifters? Like, are they just trying to have their moment in the sun, or like, what's going on there? Are they just kind of swept up in the general mayhem of of Cold War Two? I think some of them are just completely ego obsessed. I think the sort of the more Eric Garland type, I guess we can classify them as the unhinged uh, Adderall snorters. Louise Bench probably fits into this category too. I think those guys are just honestly mostly unhinged. Really believe it really think that like what they're doing matters when obviously if anyone with any level of power in the Kremlin is paying attention to Eric Garland, I would be absolutely shocked. Then I think there's the more insidious classification of them that these are the people who are kind of really profiting off of it. And a lot of people 
it's easy to make fun of Eric Garland types for the fact that they have these Patreons where they make a couple thousand dollars a month, which, yes, as someone who's in a grads program and extremely frustrated with funding, I sympathize. But they don't really have the power here. And I think the ones who are really swept up with the cold, the new Cold War narrative are the ones who are really profiting off of this and see it as an opportunity to profit massively, whether it's in terms of personal connections, so building up connections through these Senate hearings, appearing in Senate hearings, et cetera, like Molly McHugh has, or profit. I think that's a smaller group. I think it's a significantly smaller group, but I think it's the one that we're going to be stuck with for a while. And there's not really a good way to get rid of them, aside from just saying, well, you're wrong. And also, you work for corrupt politicians. Like, why should we listen to you? Yeah. Yeah. Just, you're wrong. (laughs) You're wrong. Can I lead us back into my second question? Yes. We have this concept concept of the Russian soul that we've been discussing, the history of the concept. But, like, very broadly, it's about an essence or identity or something. I just want to talk about the connection between the broader, like, Russia Gate narrative that's happening right now, Cold War II narrative. How do we connect those more explicitly? Like, what's the relationship between this, like, oh, this unknown thing that I just, like, paste whatever I want on it and the, con- the historical concept of the Russian soul? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it just ties in pretty broadly to a sense of mystery. And this maybe there's a running joke about Orthodox theologians that if you ask them why something happens, they'll just say it's a mystery. So explain the Trinity, oh, it's a mystery. Explain the resurrection, <laughs> oh, it's a mystery, etc. But I do really think part of what all of this is born out of is if there's something that you don't know and something that you realize that you can't understand, it, whether it's on a conscious or subconscious level, and I think most of these people fit into the latter category, is that there's this tendency to get wrapped up in that. And then as a result of trying to grapple with these ideas, you end up with these extremely reductive claims. And I think sort of what they're doing is there are scary world events happening that we don't understand. And we don't understand why a troll farm in St. Petersburg is fucking with our election, what that purpose is, etc. Therefore, we're just going to tie it into these broader reductive claims about the entirety of society because it's the only way that we can really work through this. I, I don't even know what psychological like logic fallacy this would end up being, but it definitely is one. What's a logic? What do you mean? Just this sort of grand reductionism that isn't quite being presented as re- reductionism. Uh, it's sort of being presented more as a discussion of these like fake causal relationships between these various disparate parts of society and then using that as a method of extrapolating grand narratives wanting to have a grand narrative in the first place and then also this like yeah making it exactly it doesn't it's supposed to not sound like reductionism also because it's like serious yeah and like weirdly like pseudo academic sometimes i get that vibe a lot yeah i mean you you quote in that piece from an article in vanity fair by peter savodnik oh god and just and the title like i didn't even read it but the title alone which is the secret source of putin's evil and then the subtitle it's not the KGB or the Cold War. It's decidedly more Pushkin-esque or Peter the Great than that. Pick pick a Russian historical figure. It's that one. It's actually Trotsky. It's definitely Trotsky. I also opened the article, saw the title and subtitle. I was like, I can't. I just can't. I can't read it. 
before we started doing the podcast and like we're motivated to the podcast we were in part motivated by this kind of bullshit this is exactly the thing i don't know that i would always talk about when like people write about russia and they just literally like throw in a few like, keywords it's just really <laughs> bizarre it's like not grounded at all in it's it's not grounded in reality at all and it's like l- very loosely grounded in in some sort of his like knowledge of history but like super vaguely I guess one thing I'm curious about, and I don't have like a formulated question for it, and we've already kind of touched on it, but it's just interesting to me that like the idea of the Russian soul in reading that uh, Williams, I think it was the Williams article, kind of describes how the Russian soul was created by Russians as a way of like othering themselves as being like, oh, you know, we're an alternative to the decay and the industrialization of Western Europe and we are other in this like specific and good way. And then the fact that that has been taken and like kind of bastardized into meaning other in a bad way, I guess, yeah, I don't know if I have a specific question about that. I just think that that's like an interesting trend. I guess, yeah, because also Williams like also points out that whole influence of German romanticism in particular, which like literally none of us know about, so we don't have to get into it. Germany <laughs> is a country. I know <laughs> but but yeah just like using the russian soul is is like this collective term of nation building which is like the idea that comes out of german romanticism wait so yeah what's interesting just to add on to that though is that williams is saying like the idea there's like ideas or like tools or like ways of thinking coming from german romanticism and nation building first adopted by russian thinkers to other themselves sort of via the russian soul as you said and then that concept is then turned around and used by the West, actually in both a positive and negative sense now. When the Russian thinkers are othering themselves in reference to the West, they include Germany in that. So it's like using German thought against Germany. I, I, I actually have a question that's like kind of vaguely related, only in that it also relates to the article. We've touched on like this notion of fear, and, and you quoted Sean Guillory and stuff, talking about how our fear of Russia is like actually just a projection of our own insecurities. I guess maybe could you go into detail about what you think those insecurities are as they relate to Russia? Oh, so basically answer the last question of your article. Is that what you're saying, Seth? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's difficult because I think it sort of depends on what your political leanings are. I think one thing that you tend to find in a lot of far-right discussions of Russia is that part of the obsession with Russia ends up being that as Americans, and especially as, like for extremely far writers in the U.S., there's a lot of anxiety about this notion of tradition. And orthodoxy obviously places a lot of emphasis on tradition, although not in the way that these guys think it does. What I would argue is proper orthodoxy doesn't place the same emphasis on tradition as these guys think it does. I think a lot of it has to do with anxieties about identity. And as Americans, we don't really have this solid identity and kind of grapple. We're trying to grapple for something. I think this is something that pops up on right and left. And I think it's actually something that the far right gives the far right a lot of power because they're willing to grapple with that notion. And as a result, Russia is being this sort of mysterious other, I guess they would probably argue backwards, but not in a pejorative way. Backwards country is that it's tangible and it's something that you can latch onto. What do you mean it's tangible? What's tangible? 
exactly. I mean, it's something that you can point to Orthodox history. You can po- you can point to kind of the development of a certain type of cons- conservatism and identity. And pointing to the, the Russian soul is one means of doing that. Uh-huh. So you can basically say, well, oh, this is this is our ideal. We need some kind of like national spirit, some national volk, so to speak. I guess to tie it back to the German concept. I guess particularly on the left, too, it's become a sort of way of dishing out all these fears and anxieties that if we have this specific idea of an other and it's an other that is threatening us, it should be clear, too, when I'm talking about the left here, I'm talking more about like almost like Joy Reid types. I, I, I think it's a way of groping at understanding and usually falls short. That's a general thing that like is a general phenomenon of like government nation building, Go- government led nation building is like looking at inherently other yeah or like looking at some outside enemy but what's specific here i feel like what you're saying is what's specific here is that well you said like there's this kind of void or something of our own identity or one cohesive american identity or something it's so it seems like russia has this like cohesive identity in like some people's imaginations right the russian soul yeah, which of course it does not. Right. It's really easy to look at another country and say that, oh, they seem extremely unified in their opinions. Um, and if you're only looking at opin- uh, like opinion polls of Putin's approval ratings, that's pretty easy. Obviously, it's never the case. You're, you're, you're referring to like America not having a unified identity in the same way that other countries might feel internally simply because like we're young and have a like troubled young history well and also we set ourselves apart by trying to present ourselves as not really being an ethnos in the sense of european countries would have an ethnos that's why we just have to build our identity around being number one that's our ethnicity being number one we're number one we have a lot of debt and a lot of military (laughs) what do you have (laughs) america like at kindergarten okay i just wanted to like I just wanted to really, really briefly point out that it's really funny if you Google Russian soul in Russian, like what happens. And just the fact that that is like we've been talking a lot about how Russian soul is used from like the contemporary West, specifically America. But just like it is notable that there's like this concept still is used, but in this like really cliche by Russians. Yeah, that sort of pop cliche images of russian folklore so not only the bear but like those flowery scarf you know that you can imagine like a babushka wearing there's some like peasant imagery also not surprisingly there's some russian folklore and like fairy tale imagery there's yeah these like weird like pose cliche pictures of like little girls in those like in those scarves next to a samovar that kind of thing I don't know. I just came across the word used just because we had talked about like looking a little bit into how it's used in like contemporary media. There were all these like social media responses to like this famous Russian s- actress wearing um, one this traditional scarf, not that scarf with the flowers, but like a knitted. It's like this really warm Smith. You remember that scarf I had? That's really warm, like some kind of goat hair or something. Mm, vaguely. It's like beautifully knit, crocheted. I think. Okay. Anyway, they're like very Russian. It's like generally associated more with like, you could see little, little kids will wear them sometimes and like babushki. Okay. So the, the actor is wearing But this it. beautiful young actress. Yeah. Sorry. This beautiful young actress wearing it. And then people in a photo shoot and like looks beautiful and hot and people like responded. I don't like, who knows the age of these people, but very much like 
use the word Russian soul to be like, oh my God, like she's just like the epitome of the Russian soul <laughs> or like the Russian soul. She's like, <laughs> she's like, this is the real Russian woman. So Russian soul was used as a synonym for like Russian woman um, or Russian essence or like our roots and like our culture and like how wonderful it was that she was representing it. And the, a similar, like exact same response, sim- very similar wording was used to respond to this like Russian supermodel. She was photographed with like pickles or like jars of <laughs> homemade things, like jam or something. And it was also just like, oh, like she has a true soul, <laughs> like Russian soul. That's just like trashy social media stuff. But I feel like it's also important to acknowledge that side of it. I noticed that there's a Hotel Ruskaya Dusha in St. Petersburg. I mean, it looks like a perfectly fine hostel. But it looks like kind of cliche Russian stuff, like folklore? or like uh, A little bit. Except for the fact that they then have these weird pictures of sandwiches that I can't quite figure out like what the purpose of throwing in pictures of sandwiches is. I mean, like, okay, you got your, you got your blini, you got your... But then you have like a picture of a ham sandwich. <laughs> I just also lastly want to point out, I just thought of this looking at this like supermodel lady. I mean, the word soul, not only is it used in that like bureaucratic sense of like, you know, at one point it was used to refer to like people, taxpayers, whatever, at one point. Now it's really commonly used as like an affectionate term. Like that's how you would like you would hear my adusha, my sweetheart or something, but not my Russian soul. <laughs> my Russian soul. Oh, my little Russian soul. How I love you. <laughs> All right, all right, we can wrap up now. Hannah, do you want to, like, give where people can find you on the Internet or where people can read your stuff or whatever contacts you want to share? Right now I'm taking a little bit of a break from writing because grad school is kicking my ass. But you can read my clips at hannahgaze.com. Very creative name. That's G-A-I-S. And I'm also on Twitter at, at hannahgaze. Thank you very much for for making time for us. I know you are very busy. I really enjoyed this discussion. I don't know. I I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a nice break from babbling to myself about the secret of the three cards. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter, Arena, and Telegram at She's in Russia. If you have a question about Russia and want us to play it on the show, give us a call at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six, or you can do the same thing by calling us on Skype at She's in Russia. You won't have to talk to anybody; just leave a message. Also, subscribe to our monthly image-based newsletter at She's in and we will see you next week. Gremlin. <laughs>